0: Well, I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians as we continue going through Ephesians. I'm going to be reading um, a larger section that I will be preaching on, but I did want to uh, keep it in its essential context. It's appropriate, very appropriate, of course, that we uh, we just sang uh A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that uh, hymn based on Psalm 46. Can anybody tell me who composed it? Martin Martin Luther. That's correct. Martin Luther composed A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And, of course, he was the great reformer. His great uh, revelation that led him to understand better our relationship to God, of course, was justification by faith alone. He rightly determined that this was the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. And the answer, of course, to the question by, uh, that we're concerned with tonight, how are we saved? What were we saved for? How, how can we be saved? Um, and the answer, of course, as Paul will unfold to us, is by faith alone. But before we read the words of Paul uh, that the Lord gave to him, let us go to the Lord himself and let's ask for his blessing. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, we thank you for yet another opportunity that you've given us to to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to go over these words that were written not just to the Ephesians in a city uh, in Asia Minor long, long ago, but rather they were written to us as well. They were given to us to assure us of our salvation, a salvation that was accomplished at the greatest possible cost by our Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, we are thankful that you gave him to us, that you sent him into the world in order that he might offer up that propitiating sacrifice that we needed, and that you raised him from the dead by your mighty power, and that, oh Lord, that same power has given us spiritual life as well. We pray now, Lord, that as we hear the words of Paul, we would take them to heart, and we would hear them as directed to us this day, and that they would give us new hope, new assurance, new conviction. And, O oh Lord, may you be with me as I preach. I confess I'm a man with feet of clay. I'm, I'm simply a sinner, but a sinner saved by grace, Lord. Help me, therefore, to extol the wonders of your saving grace. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2. And reading then, I'm going to be starting with a verse 4. But God... It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I commented last week that in this section that I just read, there are actually three different topics that are being treated. First, Paul goes over the spiritual state of the Ephesians before their conversion. And then he talks about the change that God has wrought in them, and then finally, the third, the third part is the design for which that change had come to pass. Why did God do it in the first place? Today we are going to be taking a look together at verses four through six, uh, which means we're going to be dwelling on part two, the change that God wrought in them, a change that I think we undervalue. A change that we do not uh, bring to mind enough. Uh, I've been telling you how in Paul's writing, uh, and this is something that many Reformed writers have commented on in the past, there is an already not yet structure. He talks about the things that the Christian here on earth, even as he's writing to them, already have. But then he talks about the things that are not yet in our possession, that we don't have yet in its fullness. So, for instance, we have truly, if we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, we already have many things, and we'll discuss those blessings. For instance, just one of them is we have new life. We've been regenerated. We've been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, but we don't have yet the perfect fullness. For instance, we still struggle with sin than the remnants of corruption within us. We have not yet been perfectly glorified. We look forward, I hope you look forward to that day. I certainly look forward to that day. Every day I wake up, I tell you the truth, wishing the remnants of sin and corruption were no longer part of my heart, wishing that I did not struggle with temptation any longer. And I want all the other things that go along with glorification. I want my new body. I want my body made like Christ's. I'm tired of thinking, oh, no, this is something else that I'm going to have to list uh, on the, the things that I tell my doctor about when I go and see him next time. Brothers and sisters, I hope that's your great hope too. You're looking for the fullness, but at the same time, I hope you are appreciating more and more each day the things that you have through Christ. We'll talk about them. Now, how do we get all of these things? How did they come into our possession? Certainly, they didn't come into our possession because we worked for them. As a matter of fact, one of the things that we see in this section, actually, in verse four, there is a conjunction. And it is one of the most important conjunctions in the entire Bible. That conjunction, of course, is the word but. And specifically, Paul says, but God. In the Greek, it's just two letters, D-E-D-E. Now, why is this particular but so important? Well... You remember Paul had just finished outlining to the Ephesians how they were dead in sins and trespasses. That really had been their state. They weren't spiritually sick. They weren't in need of a little spiritual help. They didn't need a self-help manual uh, given to them that would help them to get through life. They were dead in sins and trespasses, and their will was bent permanently in the wrong direction. They were totally depraved. They did the will of the devil and not under duress. They happily did it. And as a result of these things, they were by nature children of wrath, as he says. They were completely destined to hell. That's how they had come into this world. That's how they were living. They had no desire to change, no ability in themselves to change their course. And yet, at the same time, everything had changed. You were in that condition, but, and what was that but that came in? But, dot, dot, dot. But God. But God who is, as Paul says, rich in mercy. Mercy, of course, is un. Deserved grace. It's something that we receive without ever having deserved it. And He gave it to us. They had been delivered from that dreadful condition. And it was by an act of spiritual resurrection, a spiritual resurrection as profound, in fact, even more profound than the resurrection that Jesus had effected in the life of, or rather, in bringing His dead friend Lazarus back to life, calling him out of the tomb why more profound well because Lazarus in that resurrection was only resurrected physically and of course he he went ahead and died again but this is a resurrection from which the saints will never suffer loss they will never die again god paul tells us and not themselves not ourselves brothers and sisters we did not do this we could not bring ourselves from death to life god did it he was the author of the change And it was not because of any goodness in us. Why did he do it? And the answer is because of his abounding love. Now, this was mercy, okay? This is undeserved grace in God bringing us from death to life, God resurrecting us with Christ. It was his unmerited favor, but he didn't do this randomly. He didn't do this simply because he saw us in that condition, and then he said, oh, dear, they're in a terrible state. I better... I better change them. He didn't do this simply arbitrarily. Why did he do it? He did it because of his love. Paul has been telling us, and I hope you see the way, as we're going through Ephesians, I, I pray that you're seeing the way that Ephesians fits together, how it's a, it's a comprehensive message. Chapter 1, chapter 2, that these aren't simply systematic theological topics. And he's hitting one and then hitting another. He's writing a letter. He's talking about the Ephesians themselves, these Ephesian Christians who were saved. How they had been chosen by God. Remember that in Ephesians 1. Why did he choose them? Because he loved them. Why did he love them? Because he loved them. Why did he set his love upon them? Because he determined that he would love them and that he would bring them into the kingdom. That he would seat them with Christ. That he would unite them to his son. And that he would redeem them by the the highest possible cost. Paul has been telling us, you and me, and the Ephesians. Because remember, this is not just uh, written to the Ephesians. It's written to every Christian, every true believer. He's been telling us since chapter 1, God's love was given to definite individual persons for its object. Now understand what this means. It means that God did not die on the cross to make it possible for you to be saved. Christ died on the cross in order to save you because he loved you. That's how great his love was. He had you in mind. His name, uh, your name was graven upon his hands. That's the incredibly important thing to remember. He, as Paul says, and note this, he he uses the, the plural including himself, he loved us. God so loved us, both Jews and Gentiles, that he chose us and he saved us by the working of his son. This is something that Paul, of course, uh, was not alone in, in opening up in the word of God. In 1 John 4, 9, we read, In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Excuse me. In this is love. <laughs> Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the wonderful thing about God. Our love, brothers and sisters, uh, as we experience it when we love other people, it's a reactive love. It's a love that sees something in another person that we, we, we love, we admire, we desire, we have affection for. We think, uh, we think it's wonderful. So what are we doing? We're reacting to that person. That's the way our love works. Not so the love of God. The love of God is original to us. There is nothing that he saw in us that was worthy of his love. And yet, he loved us. And he determined that we would be his children, his people. His love was first. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his only begotten son into the world. And that is the wonderful good news. Even when we were dead in sins and trespasses, even then, when we were utterly helpless, spiritually dead, as spiritually dead and helpless as, uh, as Lazarus was physically in the tomb, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. That's encompassed in those, those two wonderful words, but God. You were in a terrible state, but God intervened. So great was his love for you. Now, you remember, Paul has been stressing throughout this section and before it that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that raises us from spiritual death. It is the same working of the Holy Spirit. But note this phrase in verse 5 that we were raised together with Christ is vital. Together with Christ. Now, you could meditate on that all day long, the believer and how he is together with Christ, united to him. Charles Hodge explains the the import, the weight of this uh, word or phrase, rather. In virtue of the union, covenant and vital between Christ and his people, his death was their death. His life is their life, and his exaltation is theirs. Hence, all the verbs used in this connection are in the past tense. They express what has already taken place, not what is future not what is merely in prospect. The resurrection, the quickening and raising up of Christ's people were in an important sense accomplished when he rose from the dead and sat down at the right hand of God. So John Chrysostom put it this way. He said, the life of the whole body is in the head, and therefore when the head rose, the body rose. And so Hodge concludes, each in his order, however, first Christ, and then they that are Christ's. He's talking about a spiritual resurrection that is already accomplished because of what Christ has done, that is working in you because you're united to him and he was raised, so too you will be raised. He the first fruits and you who follow after him. This is the fruit of our union with Christ. In a real sense, we already have spiritual resurrection. It's already in our possession. And, you know, as he's thinking on these things, it's amazing that, you know, there's in, in Ephesians chapter 2, you'll see in verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive with Christ. And then they give you a parenthesis, by grace you have been saved. And parenthesis, there's no parenthesis in, in Greek. He's speaking to an amuensis, he's speaking to a secretary. And he's going through this, and it's so amazing, he says, by grace you have been saved. And I understand that, you know, the authors in putting it into English, put it in parentheses. There should be like three exclamation points after the, by grace you have been saved, actually. By grace you have been saved. It, it amazes even Paul. And remember when he's talking, he's not amazed simply because Gentiles were brought into the kingdom. He's amazed because we were saved by God through the sacrifice of his son. We, us, together, all of us. That amazes him. And it should amaze us as well. If the saving grace of God bores you, something is really wrong. It should be the case that you are absolutely amazed. Sometimes, I think that the saving grace of God may bore us simply because we think we deserve it. Or that it's something that already happened, it's in the past, and it's not as important as the things that happen out here in the world. My job, my relationships, my... The weather, day-to-day, these things, the state of my house, my family, my job, etc. Oh no, mothers and sisters, your salvation is the most important thing that could possibly happen in the universe in reference to you. And without it, you are in that same sorry condition that Paul was speaking about before, death and trespasses and sins. Who cares what your job is when you're dead in trespasses and sins? Who cares what car you drive when you're dead in trespasses and sins? Who cares how hot your wife is if you're dead in trespasses and sins? Or your husband, ladies. I'm sorry. I don't need to, you know, exclude that. But at all, it doesn't matter in the end because in the end, you're dead in trespasses and sins and you're on your way to hell. I had great toys on the way to eternal punishment. Really? That's what captivates you? That's what's most important to you? That you have a few pleasures here? That you drink a thimble full of pleasure, to use Thomas Watson's immortal phrase, a thimbleful of pleasure now that you might consume an ocean of wrath later? What a terrible trade. But Paul knows that the Christians that he's speaking to in Ephesus have been delivered from that. By grace you have been saved. It's an ecstatic reminder from Paul. And one given again and again. Their deliverance from the terrible state that they were once in is due to the power and the unmerited love of God. They didn't deserve it. They couldn't do it for themselves. But Paul sees how wonderful it is. And so he's constantly throwing that in whenever he can. Isn't the grace of God amazing? Isn't it beyond comprehension? I can't even get my hands around it. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's something that we would never do for our enemies, for rebels. We can barely, we can barely tolerate the people who hate us. We can barely think about them. God loved them and saved them. And then he says in verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, at this point, we might pause. We might stop and, and maybe scratch our heads and say, what? Seated us together in the heavenly places? I I don't appear to be seated in the heavenly places. I appear to be seated in Providence ARP at 400 Eastwood Avenue. Still, verifiably, here on earth. And I gotta tell you, if this is heaven, I want my money back. I mean, it's heated, but you know, this is not what I was imagining. So what does Paul mean by, by that phrase, heavenly places? Now, you understand that when Paul speaks of heaven in his epistles. We've discussed this before in various different sermons. There's three different levels of heaven. When the, uh, the Jewish person in the first century would go outside and they would look at the sky. Okay, so If it's day, they would see the, the clouds and the blue sky. That's the first heaven. If it's night, they would see the stars and the planets. And they understood that that was beyond just the sky and the clouds and so on. And that was the second heaven. And then there was the third heaven. The third heaven is the heaven of heavens. This is the place where God dwells. That was beyond the universe. Their conception was that this was an entirely different realm, a different place. But now, Paul is using this phrase, heavenly places, with an even wider application, even beyond the idea of the third heaven, the place where God specifically manifests his presence, the place where Christ is literally physically with him, sitting at his right hand and interceding for his his people. That's the word I'm looking for. Here, the heavenly places refers to the state into which believers are introduced by their regeneration. The very different state that we are brought into. In this sense, it encompasses a, a, a very wide meaning. Kingdom of heaven is a state that we have been brought into. It is a state of purity. It's an, a state of exaltation. A state of God's favor. It's a state that the children of the world know nothing about. And it's very difficult to interest them in it. But this is a state that is real. It hasn't been realized in its fullness. The opposite state, the one that the worldling dwells in, is called the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of darkness. You remember how Paul speaks about how we were translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear son. This is the idea that he's, he's bringing out with the heavenly places. It is, the, uh, it is it, the sense in which we are. And I was grateful for Elder King mentioning this. We are citizens of heaven already. We have not yet entered into The full possession of our citizenship, we have not yet entered into that heavenly kingdom that we know is coming, is around the corner, is yet nearer than when you first believed, but yet we already have our full citizenship there. And so therefore, in a very real sense, we are seated in the heavenly places. So Charles Hodge again reminds us of this. He says, we, if Christians belong not to the earth, but to heaven, we are within the pale of God's kingdom. We are under its laws. We have in Christ a title to its privileges and blessings and possess, alas, in what humble measure, its spirit. Though we occupy the lowest place of this kingdom, the mere suburbs of the heavenly city, still we are in it. I like that idea. We here in Fayetteville dwell in the suburbs of the heavenly city. We are suburban citizens of the heavenly country. And there is so much this already not yet example. And I find often that we spend too little time contemplating what it means to be already seated in the heavenly places. To already be citizens of the heavenly kingdom. To already have all of these benefits. We lament Every day, I think, the not yet, the not yet, the not yet, the not yet, and we don't appreciate the already. And how the already means that the not yet is coming. That it is definitely going to be given to us. It is something that we should have assurance about. Because God is the one who has given it to us. If somebody else gives you an assurance, oh yes, I will deliver this to you on such and such a date. Like the way... J.R. Cigar absolutely assured me that within two days my package would be in the hands of the person that I intended it for and their promise failed. Two days means two days. I am sorry for the reference of J.R. Cigar when there are employees of Anstead seated in the room. (laughs) I need to be more (laughs) careful in my choice, but yet That kind of thing happens all the time. Yes, I'll be out there sometime between 4 and 6 and it's 7 o'clock and 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock, whatever. We receive these promises, these assurances, but they're given to us by humans. Humans who can lie, humans who are fallible, humans who are not in charge of providence. But when God gives you a uh, providential blessing, when he gives you an assurance, when he tells you something is coming, it's going to come. These people may not be dwelling upon it enough, just as we aren't dwelling upon it enough, but they are freed from the condemnation of the law. They are freed from the dominion of Satan. They are freed from the pollution of spiritual death and all of the terrible lethargy and spiritual laziness that comes with it. They are reconciled to God. They've been given his spirit dwelling within them. They have all of those principles of everlasting life that will be manifested in them fully they are adopted into the family God they are heirs with Christ co-heirs of the kingdom they have all the rights and privileges of a son of God both in this life and in the life to come both in this present evil age and in the age to come they already have all of these things that's amazing does that amaze you It should amaze you because you, if you are in Christ, you already have these things as well. It's not that, you know, these were things that were only given to Christians in Ephesus. The offer expired. I'm sorry, you can't get in on this. The bonus code is no longer operating, etc. These are things that every Christian in Christ has. And how important this was. Why is he so ecstatic in his words? Because it was important not just to them. It was important to Paul. That's why he keeps using that, that pronoun, us, to include himself. He remembered where he was and where he was going. In, a, in an earthly sense, he remembered, I'm sure, every single day that one day he was going to Damascus to persecute Christians. And then the Lord spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he was amazed, and of course he responded, Who are you, Lord? My theology has a problem. He discovered it on the road, and he was changed forever. He was headed for Damascus, but Paul, I'm sure, also realized he was headed for hell. And what a struggle that suddenly brought upon him. I've been persecuting God and his people. I've been completely wrong. I was headed in the wrong direction. (laughs) So he prayed, and the Lord in his grace and his mercy, sent him Ananias to lay hands upon him, to baptize him, and to give him that assurance that he was saved. God did the impossible. He took a wretched sinner who would put Christians to death, and he saved him. Why? Just because of his love. Not because Paul was worthy. Because of his love, and how great that is. Let me, if I can share with you a story about the, the depth of God's love and mercy to sinners. You remember this morning uh, in your folder that the persecuted church section was uh, about um, England and what was going on there, the way that believers are now being persecuted for their thoughts, for their unspoken prayers. We've actually gotten to that point, but um, with all the, the changes that are going on in the U.K., the persecution of believers is something that's been building up and up and up. Um, let me give you an example of... Uh, of one of those events, this is not an apocryphal story. These are events that I myself was a witness to. They occurred at St. Andrews University in Scotland. Uh, Each year, to this day, uh, in the middle of April, they hold what is called Raisin Weekend. Now, April in Scotland is an incredibly cold experience. Um, But uh, on that weekend, the academic parents, who are second year students, They go through this ritual of uh, first they take their academic children who are freshmen and they take them out and they get them horribly drunk on Sunday uh, night. What a wonderful night to be getting people terribly drunk, but that's what happens. Then the following morning, they rouse them out of bed and then they dress them in a ridiculous costume, usually as skimpy as possible, uh, designed to turn them blue uh, at some point during the day. Uh, And they also give them what's called a, a raisin receipt uh, and the raisin receipt usually consists of something that is almost impossible to carry around with you. In the, in the medieval age, it was a piece of paper or a scroll attached to something that uh, another upperclassman could stop them and, and tell them, I need your raisin receipt, I need to know who your academic parents are. It was written in Latin and so on that would give all the details. Um, And as time went on, uh, they made it more and more difficult to lug around. Sometimes they'll give them a car door or a tire or something ridiculous like that where they can barely transport it from place to place. Uh, And after they've done all this, they herd them into uh, the quadrangle and then they throw things like eggs and shaving cream at them. Uh, And this is, of course, a a wonderful ritual of being introduced to academic life and uh, one of those old hazing experiences. So... um, at the time that uh, I was at St. Andrews, uh, that was one of the traditions, but there was another tradition as well um, that St. Andrews was not so happy about, and that was a lady by the name of Mrs. Ross. Mrs. Ross was a dear, old, born-again believer. I was told that at one time she had been uh, a, a woman of, um, of the streets, but she had been evangelized, and she had changed dramatically. And when Christ changed her life, she determined that she was going to spread the gospel far and wide to everybody that she could find, and mostly to these heathen students who were going to uh, St. Andrews. So um, she would spend every day out distributing tracts to students. Most of them got thrown on the floor, and she was you know, always being persecuted and uh, being you know, spat upon and so on. But she would always diligently go out to the quadrangle, on Raisin Monday and attempt to evangelize the students who were gathering there. Well, one year, one academic house in particular decided that they were going to come up with the most outrageous and offensive outfit for their academic student possible. and They were going to do it particularly because they knew that Mrs. Ross was going to be there. Uh, one member of the household finally hit on the idea that they would dress up their student as Christ, give him as his raisin receipt literally a cross, a full-size cross to lug around, and then nailed the raisin receipt to the place where above Christ's head it had said, the King of the Jews. So on Raisin Monday, they dressed this very hungover young man, and they marched him down to the quad, whipping him with shoelaces for dramatic effect. And as soon as they got to the cross, uh, the quad, they saw Mrs. Ross evangelizing. And this one student who had dreamed it all up Uh, decided it would be very, very funny if they sent Jesus, her Savior, over to talk to her. And so they did. They sent him over. Now, what do you think this dear old Christian said when this this young man came up, dressed as Jesus, dragging a cross? Did she say, you foul, offensive young wretch, The, the fires of hell are waiting for you? No, she looked not at, the, and not at the, and this was the amazing thing, she looked not at the student dressed as Christ, she looked at the one who'd sent him over, and she said, God can forgive even this sin. And the, the young student uh, laughed nervously at what had happened. I, I remember that moment now, to this day, like it was yesterday, although it was nigh on 33 years ago. So who was this wretched child of wrath who dreamt up the, that incredibly blasphemous outfit, who hated Christ, who hated Christians so much that he was willing to do that? I'll tell you why I remember it. I remember it because it was me. It was me who sent that young man over, who dreamed up that, that outfit. So perhaps you can understand why I find the grace of Christ so amazing. Because I was, just like Paul, a chief of sinners. I hated Christ. I hated his church. And yet, God sent his son into the world to die for an enemy, a rebel like me, a persecutor, a blasphemer. And how the words that Christ spoke when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing as he was being crucified, resonate in my heart. Or how those words that that Paul spoke in Ephesians 2, when he talks about being made alive, how they resonate with me because I remember how dead in my sins and trespasses I was. I remember where I was and where I would have gone had it not been for his love. And therefore, that's why I stand up here day after day doing the thing that I am I, so scared to do, which is public speaking, and why I evangelize people and so on. Because I understand what Richard Baxter meant when he wrote, I preached as never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. That's what I do. I want you to know Christ. I want you to know the grace that he shows to those who, though they be sunk low in sins, wretched and dead, can be delivered and brought into the heavenly kingdom, can be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, let me close with this. What Paul says here throughout Ephesians 2 is true for all of us. We were all once sinners, all once dead. In our sins, but we have a God who is so loving and so merciful that he sent his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to endure the wretched death of a criminal for the sake of his enemies. And he called you, he called us, not because we were worthy, but because of his great love. In Jesus Christ and in him alone is found this life, this eternal life. And I hope you all know that in your hearts right now. I hope you understand what it means to say that God's grace is amazing. And that if not, if you don't know that yet, I pray that you will flee. That you will drop all of the things that are so important to you that take up your time. You will cast them off and you will flee to Jesus Christ. Because in him and him alone will you find forgiveness for your sins and life eternal. I pray that you'll do that. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, it is a virtual certainty that there is someone listening to my voice now, either online, later on, as it's put on Sermon Audio, or right here in this place now, who has not yet closed with you, who is yet holding on to the things of this present life and thinking that they can make them happy, who does not realize that there is an eternity approaching and that ever faster Without you, without forgiveness, and that involves eternal punishment. I pray, Lord, that they would turn, that you would do that work in their heart that Paul speaks of, that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead would raise them from their spiritual darkness. I pray, Lord, that they would close with him and then obtain this incredible inheritance, that they would become princes royal in your kingdom. And look forward to spending eternity with you. May you do that work in their heart now. And may you, Lord Jesus, get all the glory now and forevermore. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen.